The uh, sun does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. I'm delighted to be here. These are historic times in Appalachia. A lot has changed, a lot is changing now, and a lot still needs to change. In our podcast, we talk with changemakers right square in the middle of all this, working to ensure the change is for the good. You're listening to Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison. This is Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison. I also serve as the CEO of Coalfield Development. And uh, this week's really cool. We have a friend and a colleague named Thomas Watson. Thomas is with a group called Rural Support Partners, who uh, I have interacted with in a variety of forms and functions throughout Central Appalachia uh, over the years. So we're going to dive into that. And uh, Thomas, are you also the founder of Rural Support Partners? I remember. I am. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am the founder. Uh, we we uh, thirteen years now that we've been doing this. Uh, this uh, sort of what I would call a, a mission focused management consulting firm, and that mission is to help drive the new economy of Central Appalachia, just as the coalfield development, just doing it from a capacity building and, and and infrastructure building sort of standpoint. Good deal. And and tell us a little bit while we're on the topic. Maybe some examples of the work that RSP has done yeah. recently that you're excited about. Yeah, well, you know, I, I see uh, I see our role as as really helping to strengthen the leaders and the organizations and the networks who are advancing the new economy, right? So we uh, most of our work focuses with um, nonprofits and, and foundations and state agencies, federal agencies, small town government sort of things. All the folks who are out there in all kinds of different iterations helping to create the new economy. Um, our job is to help them become more efficient, more effective, uh, and ultimately more impactful, which helps move our mission forward, right? And so um, uh, we do everything from strategic planning to, to evaluation, to executive transitions, to, to network management, to teaching, training, coaching, um, you know, all the good things you would think that a, that a good uh, management consultant firm would do with those type of organizations. Uh, but we focus it almost wholly on groups who are working on community economic development in Central Appalachia. So we try to keep it in that ballpark. And with the long-term goal of really helping to strengthen that infrastructure, strengthen and connect that infrastructure of leaders, organizations, networks who are moving the new economy forward. Leaders, organizations, and, and networks. And anybody who's active in community development in, in, in Central Appalachia usually knows RSP. So you, you've done a lot of work with the Appalachian Funders Network. A lot of work with the Central Appalachian Network. Uh, you helped start a even a um, a fellowship program, if I remember correctly. A, a few, it's it's honestly it's inspiring, Thomas. The the fingerprints of positive change that you've left throughout the region. It really adds up to quite an impact. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm very lucky. You know, uh, very early on, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you this story: how we got connected with the CAN and then the Funders Network, and just just how that work started. So. You know, I had uh, I had this vision of doing the kind of work that we've been doing for a long time. We were we were brand new. I'd I'd, I'd started um, started RSP and and we'd had some few clients start starting with Appalachian Sustainable Development. Actually, our first client was was the executive transition of Anthony Flacavino, which is really uh, in my mind the, the grandfather of the sustainable ag movement here in Central Appalachia. Uh, that's where we first met uh, ASD. That was our first client. 
Um, and so I knew about CAN, the Central Appalachian Network, through ASD and through Anthony and had followed that work. Had had myself been trying to build networks and been part of networks for many years be- before this. And um, and I heard that uh, CAN uh, had a coordinator and I heard that coordinator was leaving. And that coordinator at the time was embedded in MACID, which is now Mountain Association. And um, and so uh, I, I I also knew that CAN was having a little gathering up in Southern Ohio, up in Nelsonville. I'd never been up there before. Uh, and, um, it, but it was by invitation only. So for, for two or three weeks before that, I called everybody I knew to try to weasel in an invitation to this, uh, can gathering. Um, didn't have any money, literally went into debt to rent a car to, to get up there. Didn't get there till two o'clock in the morning. Uh, got locked out because, you know, it was at, at Nelsonville, it was at a, at a hotel. They didn't have anybody there. I couldn't get into my room. I didn't get in until like three o'clock in the morning. Oh. And, uh, it, and the next day it was a great gathering, by the way. It was, it was really early in Cannes work. They were doing a lot of work around food. And, and, um, and I knew Justin Maxson at the time slightly. I didn't know him really well, but I knew him enough. And, uh, and, and again, just trying to position myself. And I got a seat beside him at lunch. And I said, hey, Justin, I know that Can is looking for a new coordinator. And boy, we'd love for y'all to consider us for that job. And, and he knew me just enough to say, wow, I had not thought about you. But I bet you'd be good at it. And so he set us up with an interview with the rest of the steering committee, and uh, it, and and they decided to take a chance on us. And that was a very important time with Cam because it, it up until that point it really had been a learning network, you know, learning and sharing. But all of a sudden, Cam um, had gotten a lot of money from the Ford Foundation that they'd gotten a six to eight hundred thousand dollar grant to do local food value chains. And as a network, they had never worked together at that level to produce collective outcomes and track data and have collective uh, plans. And so that was our first entrance into uh, into CAN. And so it was our job to really help to to um, uh, create the, the framework that that really uh, led into a lot of powerful work on the local food side of CAN. And and, and that that uh, sparked um, you know a long career. Now now almost twelve years as we're stepping out of that role almost 12 years with uh, being the backbone support of the Central Appalachian Network. So fascinating journey. All these years I've known you, I had not heard that story, actually. The 2 a.m. <laughs> at Nelsonville. That's quite the entrepreneurial yeah. sprint. <laughs> yes, it was. I had no, if I'd had any idea how long of a drive it was, I probably wouldn't have done it, actually. It, you know, it's like an eight-hour drive up there from, from Asheville. Uh, in the middle of the night, so uh, so it was quite a trek. But you know, then that that opened up the window. Uh, you, you know, as the as the Appalachian Funders Network began to get started, you know, about the same time, um, it, it, it was a lot of visionary work between um, uh, Sandra Mickus at the Babcock Foundation and Mary Hunt up at the Benetton and Ray Daphner at ARC. And, and at the time, the Ford Foundation, Wayne Fabish had a great program officer and. and you know they had they had this notion that funders should start working together, and they and in 2010 they held a meeting over in Abington, brought about 30 funders together to really look at what was happening with the economy. You know we we had just gone through that major recession, and and Appalachia had been declining. You know coal had been declining, manufacturing had been declining for a long time, and then boy the bottom just fell out further than anybody thought. So they were really trying to figure out like what um, was happening with the economy and where. What should funders be doing about it? And and this is when all of this uh, um, economic transition work was really taking hold, coming out of out of Mason and, and Justin Maxson's vision, and and um, and out of KFTC and others in Kentucky. And 
And so that, that notion really took hold with that meeting in 2010. And, and, and they came out of that meeting with a vision of the Appalachian Funders Network and they created a small steering committee. Um, and then they hired us, you know, because we'd been working with CAN. They, they liked that kind of stuff. And, and um, uh, they hired us about 10 hours a week to begin to help uh, envision what that network of funders would look like and how it might work. And, and then we played that role for 10 years as well and really helped uh, build out the structure of that thing and help, help um, uh, really help to understand what funders could and couldn't do together over the years. Um, that, that, that also was an unbelievable opportunity. And then try to create synergy between the two. You know, during those years, we had Sander Mickus kind of playing one foot in both worlds. And uh, so it was a it was a fascinating time, uh, 2010, 2012 or so. So you've you've been a player in, in positive change throughout this region. I'd love to go back to the beginning. I, I've heard some great stories from you. you. You're born and raised in southwest Virginia. Um, you know, tell us where you grew up and, and what your parents did and where you went to school. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so I did. Galax is my hometown, still still my hometown, my heart. I've been in Asheville for since the late nineties or so, but uh, but Galax is it for me. It's a great place to grow up. I, uh, you know, my dad had eleven brothers and sisters. Uh, absolutely, the epitome of Appalachian poverty. I mean, growing up in you know two room shack and no shoes and hungry and um, just just a tough tough upbringing for those for those folks and. Uh, but uh, but they are also hard workers and had a good reputation and, and many of them, especially my uncle's side, um, became entrepreneurs in the '70s. My dad ran a, a, a couple of furniture stores and the clothing stores. My uncles, uh, one of my uncles, owned a car dealership. The other owned the junkyard and one owned the body shop. One owned the mobile home shop. So you know, I grew up in a in a set of entrepreneurs and and, and farmers and and factory workers. Right, that that was my uh, that was my entrance into life. I started working in the store. You know, very early on in my life, it, it was a it was an interesting uh, experience. I mean, then you know, after high school, went did exactly what most folks did in high school. I had no vision, barely made it out of high school, so went to work in the factory. I I, I got a certificate in welding and went right to work as a production welder. Um, did that for about a year or so and got laid off. You know, I got laid off my first job when I was nineteen, and and it was crushing. You know, I had no I had no responsibility, still living at home. Um, uh, but it, it was soul crushing, you know, to feel that feeling of, of not uh, having a job and, and being let go of a job that I actually liked and paid well. And, um, I, I literally the next week I went to work at the glass factory where my papa worked for about 40 years. Um, but I saw the writing on the wall, you know, that, that, um, that the manufacturing was leaving us and that, that was what was happening at the time. Galax had about 35 factories, um, in those days, you know, back in the early eighties and, uh, glass furniture textiles and and but they were one by one you know uh, leaving uh, gay lights and I was very fortunate at the time I had a girlfriend who was in community college and um, I kept talking about the need to do something else but had no vision didn't know anybody who'd ever gone to college or anything and and um, she says well why don't why don't you do something else and I was like well what what else would that be <laughs> right so is there another factory I can go to like that would be better than this one um, and she, she connected me to Whistle Community College and they took me in. Um, and honestly, I couldn't put a sentence together when I walked through the door of Whistle Community College. Uh, it's one of the m- most important pieces of infrastructure I think we have in Central Appalachia is that entrance in the college through the community college system. Uh, they can take you wherever you are and help you get out the other side of it. And so, uh, that was the first step, you know, into, into something new. 
and different and focused on management and, and, um, was very fortunate to come out of that. Uh, um, that, that opportunity, I'll, I'll stop after this one, but that opportunity, I worked at the Holiday Inn while I was in community college. Uh, and when I finished, I, I parlayed that two-year degree into a management training program with, uh, it was a small hotel management company that moved me to Greensboro and, and opened up the door. I had a great boss there uh, in Whitfield at the Holiday Inn. I had a great boss in um, uh, at the Holiday Inn in, in Greensboro. And, and that second boss connected me to Whitfield, uh, excuse me, to Guilford College, which then opened up a whole new world for me. So this notion of, of bringing young people along is key. I mean, it was, you know, I was lucky I had a girlfriend who was connected to college. I was lucky I had a, uh, a boss who cared enough to actually uh, help me get on the right direction. He even called my mom and, and, and encouraged her to let me go to Greensboro because nobody had ever left Galax, you know, and, um, and I had a good boss in Greensboro. So that, that stuck with me all my life and really tried to open up doors for young people and, and others along the way. So, you know, shows, shows my mom's, it was a community college teacher. Uh, oh, you're kidding now, me. But, uh, so I appreciate the shout out to the community colleges. I think it's one of the most important pieces that we have. I've often envisioned, boy, I'd love to be a president of the community college, what power you would have to help, um, you know, open up doors for folks like me, man. Uh, how many folks don't get that experience and that opportunity? Uh, it was the life. It was, you know, there's pivotal moments, I think, in everybody's life. And that was a, that was a major pivotal moment for me of being able to walk through the doors of Withful Community College. It opened up the rest of the world. Um, so growing up in Galax, what, what'd you do for fun on the weekends? <laughs> it's a comfortable share. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good idea. Uh, riding country roads and drink beers about what you do for uh, fun in Galax. Uh, you know, I was lucky. My, my uncles had a bunch of land on the New River. And so I spent a lot of time on the New River. Spent a lot of time fishing and rafting and Camping and, and, and enjoying uh, enjoying the river itself, uh, it, it, it was a it was a great place to grow up. I didn't realize how great you know uh, at the time, but that that was it. And then and, and then at the time, you know, Galax uh, had a main street, and and um, and I had a I had kind of an antique car. You know, my family being in the Ford dealership and things, we all we all valued cars a lot. So I had always had a nice car, and did a lot of cruising, man. Had a lot of cruising Main Street. <laughs> Love it. You and I've talked a lot. I mean, growing up in Appalachia, there's there's so much to love and 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 to celebrate. It's an authentic place. It's a unique culture. You know, Saturday nights at the racetrack, grandmas who can quilt, you got uh, it. Grandpa's grandmas garden and hunt and glass blowing and making and creating. Um, you know, but when we talk about change there, there, there's a lot that also needs to change in, in Appalachia too. How have you sort of struck that balance over the course of your life of, of loving family and friends, you know, exactly as they are and loving Appalachia as it is, but also wanting to see some things that need to change to ch- change and being willing to speak up and push it where you can. Yeah, boy, it's a, it, it, it's a good question. Um, you know, from a big picture perspective, and you know this better than anybody. I mean, I think you're the one plugging this gap uh, better than anybody I know. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, man, uh, uh, um, that factory infrastructure, my mom spent her life working at Hanks, right? She was a sewer. She worked really hard. Um, but she had good pay. But more importantly, she had family. 
I mean, they had a softball team. They had, you know, big summer picnics. I mean, she felt like she was part of something, right? She felt like she was part of a bigger something. Even when I worked in the factory as well, like I, it was part, you know, I felt support. I felt it was part of my family. I had purpose. I, you know, even though I didn't have a big vision, I, I felt like I was doing stuff that, that was important to, uh, you know, to the world. And as those factories began to leave Galax and, and, and coal and other places, um, we didn't just lose jobs. Uh, you, you know, what folks lost was purpose and they lost dignity. I mean, getting laid off at 19, I felt worthless. I couldn't imagine what it felt like getting laid off at 40 or 50 and have three kids at home, you know? And so, you know, what's happened is that the loss of our economy um, has has created um, the, the loss of vision and purpose and dignity in so many people. And um, starting in the late 80s, what began to happen there is that something pretty bad began to take its place, and that was drugs. It was first meth, and then it was the opioids, and now it, it seems like it's back to meth and fentanyl, even, even worse stuff. And that, you know, that in itself um, is an easy fallback when you when you don't have purpose and 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 vision for yourself. Um, it fills a big void. It fills a big gap. And then that begins to erode the family and erode the community. And, and that's where a lot of communities and a lot of places find themselves these days. Um, especially a young guy like me now coming out of school. If I was coming out of high school now there would be nowhere for me to go. And the easiest place for me to go would be down the route I just described, right? I had a place to go when I left high school. I didn't have any vision or didn't know what I was going to do, but I had an automatic place to go. And that doesn't exist in so many places. And so, you know, part of what's happened with me is that I was very privileged to be able to step outside of that. And and I think it's up to all of us to open up those doors for others to do the same. I mean, all of the work that Coalfield is doing is such a great example of that. You're opening up doors and opportunities for folks where there is no door. You know, we we have no bridge from high school or from the last layoff to whatever's next, you know. And I think that's some of the most important work that we can do, because once once you begin to feel that uh, personal power and dignity and have some vision, man, the world's, you know, wide open. But until you feel that, um, honestly, you're not going to go very far um, when you don't feel worthy. Uh, and you don't have vision, then you're going to get stuck pretty quickly. Uh, and I think that's all of our work. Um, and I think Coalfield is such a great example of that when I was at your at your celebration recently and just the graduations and, and, and the pathway and the bridge that you're creating for folks is some of the most important things while also creating some jobs and opportunity, you know, at the same time. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing, uh, amazing work. I appreciate it. So, so you got uh, you said Guilford College. You went from community college, Holiday Inn, Guilford College. So um, what was the next move after that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, um, boy, Guilford opened up a whole world, right? I mean that that was the place where I really had to begin to. I think two things were happening uh, at that moment. You know, I was coming alive. I, I got to Guilford, and then Guilford just opened up uh, incredible. Uh, opportunities to think. And then I started volunteering in big brothers and big sisters. And, um, and I had a, 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 um, brother, young brother, a biracial kid lived in an African American community. And, um, 
you know, he was already in trouble. I, I was working with the more hard, harder kids there. It's what I was really wanting to do at that time. And, and, uh, boy, just opened up my whole world, uh, there, you know, and, and I came out of Guilford. I became a banker. Uh, that was my, that was my next move and, and managed a branch uh, of banking for Wachovia. But I kept this, this volunteer work up and then they opened up opportunities for me to work in the schools and teaching the schools and stuff as a volunteer. You know, they encourage the bank encourages to do stuff like that. So it's great. And so it, 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 it was about two years, three years into the banking career and, and, and I started looking at my journal and everything in my journal was about my work with these kids. And it was nothing in there about the bank. Right. And frankly, the bank was just a sales job. It was a selling credit to people who didn't need credit to start with. And anybody who did need credit, there was nothing I could do for them. And, and so I, I, I just had this reckoning that, um, that the banking wasn't really for me. And what I really wanted to do was pivot and, and work with kids like this and open up this door so that other people had opportunities as I had had myself. And so I left the bank and went to work in a wilderness camp where kids would come instead of going to jail, they'd come and spend a year in the woods and get a lot of counseling and, and a lot of support and, and, and a year's worth of high school. And, and, um, and what I saw in that camp was that, man, these were tough kids um, in tough situations um, who were heading to jail. And once they got to camp and they had a community, that was positive and supportive and they didn't have to worry about the money coming in or drugs in their community or peer pressure, man, those kids turned around 100%. It was unbelievable. The change that would happen from when they would walk into the door and six months or six weeks after they were in the program. And so, um, but the problem was I had to send them home, right? And I'd send them home every six weeks and they would come back out of whack again, every time I'd send them home. Right. And so I, I began to think about this, this notion of like, man, um, I was going to be a teacher, right? That, that was, I was going to springboard from that to, to go back and teach. And, and so I saw very clearly that, man, these kids needed a good teacher, but what they needed was a better school system. And, and what they needed was their parents needed more money. And what was needed is that drugs needed to get out of the community. They needed an after school program. They needed to stop being oppressed by, um, you know, all of these adults who just looked at them uh, it, 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 as they were losers. Right. And so, um, uh, one of the most fortunate, again, you know, people in your life, my, uh, partner at the time was the last fellow at the Babcock foundation. And I got invited to a, uh, to a board meeting. Uh, they had a dinner, one of the board meetings, I got invited and I sat down beside Gail Williams, who was the director at that time, never met her before. Um, and I was so fired up about this work. Um, it's really embarrassing to say this now, but I talked her face off at that night at that board meeting. Right. And it was all about this stuff. I was like, you know, I just, I was just so, uh, trying to understand, like, how do you create an environment for these kids to thrive? That was the big question. Right. And she said to me, she said, well, you know, people do work like that. Right. And I said, uh, what do you mean? What, 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 what kind of work do you mean? And she said, it's called community development and community organizing. And she gave me, she said, wait a second. And she just did this to shut me up, I'm sure. She said, wait a second. She walked in her office and she gave me the book of Highland. She gave me Seeds of Fire, um, the, the Miles Horton story of Highland. Wow. And I, I, I read it in a week and I, and, and I came back to her and I was like, this is what I want to be doing. How, how do I learn how to do this? <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, and I ended up in graduate school at Chapel Hill in a master's uh, program in social work. 
with a focus on community development, community organizing. I was lucky I had a couple of professors there who had been in international development and had been organizers. And they let me literally create a program tailored to fit me. Um, and that got me down the nonprofit path. So, and then Sandra, you know, Mick is at the Babcock Foundation and Gail were core mentors to me forever and really are responsible for so much of my thinking and Highlander as well. I mean, all of that stuff that came out of Highlander, I was lucky I met, um, I met uh, some folks at Highlander when I was in graduate school, Helen Lewis, who uh, was really Miles Horton's right-hand woman and for many years, and, and she got me up to Highlander. I ran some of their summer programs while I was in graduate school. Uh, just a transformative experience. So came came out of there, uh, graduate school, really really as an organizer um, and, and fired up to do the kind of work that we've been doing ever since. Incredible. I, you know, and of course, Babcock was a, one of the very early supporters of Coalfield Development, and it's how I met my wife Ashley. So it's amazing. Well, I, I, one thing leads to another. <laughs> I remember Ashley well, and I remember Sandra Mickus uh, telling me many years ago. She said, "You got to pay attention to this guy Brandon up in Huntington. Uh, man, he's got some really great stuff. Uh, you need to figure out a way to connect with him." And so I remember that very uh, distinctly. Um, I, I got one more step of this story to, to, to kind of bring it all home and. And I'll tell you what it is. So when I finished graduate school, I was, I was pretty much, I was very justice oriented sort of fellow at that time, really on fire, like a, like a, young, a lot of young people should be. And, uh, and I moved to Minneapolis. Uh, my apartment at the time went to graduate school up there. I'd never been out of the South. So we decided to take a chance. And I really became a, a very in your face organizer. I mean, hardcore organizer, right? Around affordable housing issues. At the time, Minneapolis had um, uh, a, a massive affordable housing issue, 300% increase in child homelessness. Um, uh, a real land grab of the city uh, were going to tear down 900 units of affordable housing of, of public housing and they were moving all of the folks in those fo- uh, affordable housing out to the first tier suburbs wouldn't let them use vouchers in the city and um, uh, and they were going to turn that into a, to the yuppie inside of town right they were going to turn it into getting all the white folks to come back and so um, myself and an organizing partner of mine, Neva Walker, who went on to be the first African-American woman in the House of Representatives for, for the state of Minnesota, wow. we were the organizers tuned to, to, to do something about that, right? And so we uh, literally were knocking on doors in public housing. We started the Northside Neighbors for Justice. Uh, it was a group of public housing um, residents. Uh, uh, we were doing meetings in five languages. It was Hmong, African-American, African, Spanish, you know, it was fascinating. We built a big group of African-American churches around the Northside Neighbors of Justice, and we literally fought the city. And we fought the city on affordable housing issues and the demolition of this housing uh, in Minneapolis. And um, and all of this work accumulated up until one day, and we were building a big following, man. We were getting good press, and we were building a, a pretty uh, a robust uh, a group of folks around this stuff. We were trying to stop them from moving people out to the suburbs. We were trying to stop the demolition before you build back housing because there's nowhere for people to go. We were trying to get policy passed for new money and this kind of stuff. And all this work accumulated up until one day, um, there was a, they were going to, the city was going to demolish 40 units of housing. And they announced it on a, on a Tuesday and it was going to happen on a Wednesday. And so we held an emergency meeting the night before and we said, hey, we just got to show up. We had no plans to stop it or anything. We just wanted to bring attention to it and show up the next morning. By 10 o'clock that next morning, we had about 150 people on that site. Um, uh, Keith Ellison, who's now the attorney general of Minnesota, he was, he was a partner in all this work. He was, he was a DJ. He was a lawyer, but he was a DJ at the local African American radio station at the time. And so he was 
telling everybody to come out. We had like 200 people there by 11 a.m. And all of a sudden, the pastors who had been in the civil rights movement and who, who had really done unbelievable work uh, on these issues forever, they got all of us, they just, they just spontaneously got us all in a big circle. And they said, here's what civil disobedience is, and here's what we're going to do, and here's what we need everybody else to do. And they literally held hands around the bulldozer, 12 of them, 12 pastors, and said, you will not tear down these houses. And, of course, the, the police came out, they arrested those pastors. And on the front page of the Star Tribune the next day, there were 12 pastors with handcuffs being pushed in the cars on the front page of the Star Tribune the next day. But that day, you know, man, you want to fire up a community, arrest a pastor, right? By noon, by, by 1 o'clock, we had 400 people at the mayor's office downtown demanding that the mayor stop this biggest development process in the history of Minneapolis. Mayor comes out, um, Sharon Belton. And, and she puts a moratorium on the development. She stops it, right? And she turns to the Northside Neighbors of Justice, and she says, what the hell do y'all want? And the truth is, we didn't know, <laughs> right? We had a list of demands. We know what we wanted to stop, but we didn't have a vision for really what we wanted that community to look like, right? And as we grabbed the power, we had all the power in the world right at that moment, but we didn't have the leadership. We didn't have the trust. I mean, hell, we were doing means in five languages, right? We didn't have the trust. We didn't have the network in place. And all of that began to crumble, right? Right after we got the power. Now, some good things happened. You know, uh, affordable housing trust fund got in place. More money got happening. People got a chance to come back to the neighborhood. Affordable housing got over there. Some good things happened. We pushed out the, the city council member of that neighborhood. Some good things happened. But the truth is, the infrastructure of leaders and organizations and networks were not in place to actually make that work effective. And I saw at that moment, I was like, one, I don't need to be an interface organizer. It's not my style. It's not who I am. And number two, if somebody had been in those, um, in those tenant, in those, uh, uh, public housing units, building tenant councils, building leadership, bringing those tenant councils together to build trust and relationship and a vision for that community, we literally could have sat down as partners and could have shaped the whole redevelopment of that neighborhood. But because none of that capacity building had been done, None of that leadership development had been done. We we're trying to do all of that and fight the city at the same time. Can't happen, right? And so I left that experience. I came back to North Carolina, started the Center for Participatory Change, and had one idea, and that was to support these grassroots leaders, to build leadership, to build organizations, and to build networks, and, and to have that work, you know, create daily change and create the infrastructure for that daily change to happen, but to also have that infrastructure in place when the big opportunities and the big challenges come along so that we can actually grab the power and, and a seat at the table and be effective at it. So that's the, that's the long history. And that's the work ever since. I went from CPC to, to doing that at the national level to Casey Foundation. I've been doing it at RSP ever since. But it was off that simple notion that in order to create change, you have to have infrastructure to do it. And somebody's got to be out building and strengthening and connecting that infrastructure for it to be successful. And Thomas, I, multiple points of that story. I got chills. I teared up a little bit, laughed a little bit. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a gift to hear So you're a very highly respected leader in Appalachia and, and it's a gift to sort of hear the thought process, some of those key moments that shaped your thinking. Yeah. That is fascinating to hear. I appreciate you so much sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a wild ride for sure. And, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it's just been the opportunity to, um, Again, I, I, right people, right places, man, and, and, and people really helping to, 
to shape that next layer of thinking with me, you know, uh, as you're, as, as you continue to do with me now, right. I mean, it's the uh, same, same thing continues to happen. So I got two more questions for you. Um, a lot of your work, you've mentioned networks and, and the importance of networks. I think in some ways it's become a buzzword. You know, it's like, it's, it's a lot of people are like, yeah, of course we want to be a network, but I've really learned. I mean, it's, it's an easier said than done type of situation. You can have meetings and get a letterhead that says your network, or you can really learn how to be a network that gets good work done. So from your perspective, having been a part of several of them, how do, how do you be a real network that gets good work done? Yeah. You know, um, Many, many years ago, uh, here here in North Carolina, I was trying to start some networks. Same idea, you know, theoretical. I knew we needed to work together and I knew we needed to think together. And I was, I, I'll never forget this moment. I was, I was facilitating a big meeting here in Western North Carolina, trying to get a bunch of people to, to build a network. And I was up there talking about networks, networks, networks. And and this woman stands up. There's probably 40, 50 people in the room. And, and this woman stands up and she, and this is her exact words. She says, Thomas, I don't want to be part of no damn network. I got too much going on already. I got too many things happening and I ain't got time for a network. What I want is I want to know everybody in this room well enough to where when I have a problem or if I need help, that I can call you up and you'll help me. That's what I want. You know? And it really shaped everything about me. I'm like, you know, that is it right there, right? That's the fundamental piece of what makes a network work. It is the trust and relationships. So that you can do easy work together, you can do hard work together, and you can stay together over the long term. But more importantly, it's that we know each other well enough in the network or out of the network that I can call you up and ask you for help. I feel that way with you, Brandon, because I've been in this network with you now for many years, right? Absolutely. And so if I didn't have that relationship, you wouldn't even answer my call. You ain't got time, right? But since I know you, I know that if I need you, I can call you up. And you're going to give me the time of day and you're going to trust me enough uh, to hear what I have to say. And, and you're going to care enough to actually do what you can to help me. And that's the fundamental foundational piece. And if that's not in place, then it just doesn't work. And that's where we see networks fall apart most of the time is that people come together. You know, they don't know each other. They don't have trust. They don't have a common vision. They don't have, um, uh, you know, the time together. And they try to do the hardest thing in the world which is work together on very difficult and complicated problems, right? And so the main lesson, I think, in all of this network stuff is that you've got to take the time to build the trust and to build the relationships that then allow you to do good work and hard work over a long period of time. And to be able to sit down and talk through your differences or your similarities or whatever it is, you know, um, that's the key to it all, (laughs) I think. Well, it's, you know, and it's harder than it sounds. I mean, you, you know, you'd say we got to build those trusts and relationships. And yeah. in a sense, it, it is just spending time together, but, you know, it's crowding out the distractions and being fully present for that time and learning how to be honest and direct, but still kind. And it's just easier said than done, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I, I Leslie Schaller, uh, Ace Net there, part, part of CAN for, uh, from the very beginning. I always quote her on this one. She says, you know, um, 
we build relationships through, uh, you know, having coffee time and hanging out time and, and, and things like that. But we build trust by getting things done together. Right. Uh, I trust you because I can count on you and you're accountable to us. And, and, and so it is harder than it sounds. And, you know, I, I always think about this in sort of four the four C's, right? There, there's kind of four um, things that happens in a network and they happen all the time in different ways and they're always coming in and out. But, you know, um, the, the, the simplest thing in, that happens in a network is just communication. We are better off just talking to each other, right? And, and learning from each other and figuring out what's happening. And then, you know, once you start communicating with each other, you at least have enough to begin to coordinate some things, right? We can begin to think together about stuff, about what should happen, about our analysis, about, you know, you can do this training on this day, I'll do it on that one. You know, um, we, we can begin to coordinate some efforts so that we're not duplicating, so that we're building on stuff. But then you start moving to collaboration where we're actually sharing resources and, and we actually have to deeply depend on each other to get something done. Well, that's a whole different level, right? Because up until that point, um, you know, we're still independent actors. We're just kind of coordinating what we're doing. Once you start collaborating, then you really and truly have to depend on each other uh, to get it done. It, you know, it won't happen without us. It, it's not just a me anymore. It's an us. And then the collective impact thing is even one step above that. That's, you know, measurable goals. That's that's really where you have to have some backbone support to to, to be able to facilitate the bigger uh, movement of the group and, and, and you're producing serious, uh, collaborative outcomes. And so, um, you know, it takes time to move through those, those four C's and, and they all happen at different phases and different ways in the network all the time. Um, but the more you can move toward the collaborative stuff, the greater impact that you're going to have and the harder it is to do it. Well, my final question, um, is my standard question. I like to ask all the guests. So uh, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in Appalachia during your time here? And then what are some big changes that you haven't seen yet, but you still hope to see? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's a lot of uh, around what we've been talking about today is, is, is collaboration, coordination, working together. You know, when the Thunders Network started in 2010, I actually was blown away that, that you know, it's a fairly small region, but, but almost none of the funders knew each other, you know? Um, and it, 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 it just didn't make sense that they didn't know each other. You know, everybody kind of kept their head down and doing their own work. And so the, one of the biggest changes I've seen in the time that I've been working in Appalachia is that we're in alignment with each other. And, and there is so much work together that's happening. And this notion of working together in collaboration in whatever form that might be, has really taken hold. I mean, there's a collaborative mindset. There's a collaborative spirit, I think, in Appalachia that didn't exist, um, you know, even 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And there has been organizations like, and people like Leslie Schaller and, and Mason and, and, and others who have been, in Babcock has been, you know, promoting that notion for 30 years. And I think it's finally paying off. I think we are, in a, I think we are, uh, you know, more and more headed down the same path toward a similar vision of a, of a just, uh, and, 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 and new economy in central Appalachia. And I think that's some of the most exciting stuff. I mean, our work is beginning to add up, you know, if not from its single parts, but for the collective as a whole. And, and I see it moving in some big ways. Uh, and that's critical to our future, as, as you know. And so we have more collaborative spirit. We have less working against. Um, and we have uh, many more people heading down the same, same path toward the same vision. That's exciting stuff. 
You know, the big thing that that has yet to to happen is the scale uh, on the economy that we need, right? Uh, There's great economic development work that's happening all across the region. We are building these new sectors. I mean, you guys are leading this this work, you know. I mean, the local food sector, the clean energy sector, the reuse sector, uh, the new manufacturing sector, all of those things have a lot of wind behind them. They're moving in lots of ways, um, but we've still got to scale it up. So that the, the Thomas Watson that's coming out of high school in Carroll County today has a next step, whether they're going to college or not, they have a bridge somewhere. They have a next step to do something to, so they can get themselves together to the point where they can do something else, whatever that might be, right? We still, our economy is still um, in, our new economy is still in the formative stage, right? And so we've got to continue to work together across the region and, and turn these local and, and even you know sub-regional economic development efforts into full-scale sectors that offer enough jobs and opportunities for folks so that our region moves forward. Without a job, you don't have a vision. You know, without a vision, you don't have dignity, you don't have purpose, and we're going to continue to stall. So it's going to take networks. It's going to take collaboration in order to do that. I see it. Uh, uh, and it's hard work, and it's just going to take time. That reminds me of Max and always sort of giving a reality check of this is going to be hard, expensive, time consuming. It's possible, but I'm, let's not diminish what we're up against. I'm, I miss him so much and he is so right. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, oh, man, thank you for sharing your stories, your wisdom. Uh, anybody who's a part of a network, I'm going to encourage to listen to this episode. Thanks for everything you've done for, for me, for Coalfield, for Can, for Appalachia. It, it matters a lot, and we appreciate you. Yeah, well, right back at you, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and an honor, and uh, I'm just so excited to see your work continue to, to thrive, and, and, and you're really being on the cutting edge of, I think, what it takes to, to get the workforce back to work uh, and to create these bridges that we've talked about throughout this podcast. So thank you. I'm uh, honored to be here. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development in the hills and hollers of West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for more information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn by searching Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.